Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The bedrock of our democracy is free and fair elections. But it's not a given. It requires a lot of us. The system itself is built on trust. Now, the president has been sowing seeds of distrust throughout the course of the campaign, using his bully pulpit to spread conspiracy theories about the integrity of absentee ballots. And it's having an impact. A recent Monmouth University poll found that almost 40 percent of Americans don't believe that the elections will be conducted fairly and accurately. A majority of Americans in that poll said they think the Trump campaign will try to cheat if necessary to win in November, while 39 percent say the same thing of the Biden campaign. On top of it all, of course, is a pandemic that makes going to the polls or staffing those polls a serious health risk for many. All of this has meant that state election officials are under an unprecedented level of scrutiny and pressure. And that's why over the course of the next three weeks, we'll virtually venture to three swing states to hear how election officials in some of the most watched states are preparing. These conversations are part of a series we're calling Every Vote Counts. And this week brought us to North Carolina. I can't do this by myself. I need you, Charlotte. I need you, North Carolina. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here at UNC Greensboro. What a great North Carolina day. Thank you, North Carolina. It's a state full of wise voters. And I can truthfully say, nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina. Aside from Barack Obama in 2008, the state hasn't voted for a Democrat for president since Jimmy Carter in 1976. But polls show President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden neck and neck. Also on the ballot is a hotly contested U.S. Senate race that could determine control of that body. And voting is already underway. On September 4th, the state began sending out mail-in ballots. I sat down with Damon Sircosta, chair of the North Carolina State Board of Elections, to find out how it's going. Now, unlike many states, North Carolina's election process is overseen not by a secretary of state, but by a board of five. I started out by asking him how the board, with three Democrats and two Republicans, actually functions. On the board of elections, there's five of us, and not one of us think of ourselves primarily as partisans. Uh, The Republicans aren't there to look after Republican votes, and I'm not there to look after Democratic votes. We do a good job of making sure that all votes count. Uh, we're, we're the plumbers of democracy. All we're trying to do is make sure that our pipes flow, that everybody can get to their polling place or vote by mail or vote early and, and do it in a way that, that makes sure that their vote counts. So there's a partisan play to be made by others, but on the board itself, it's very, very nonpartisan. In fact, uh, one of the Republican members and I, we co-authored an op-ed right when the pandemic began about voting in the pandemic and how we all need to work together to make it happen. So... If we have a very, very close election in North Carolina, you expect, no matter what, that this process is going to be carried out in uh, as open, transparent, and nonpartisan way uh, possible, even if you see, for example, the president weigh in or other political figures weigh in. Talk talk about the pressure that you may feel or your your colleagues may feel on that. Well, you know, I don't think the pressure really, I mean, obviously... Partisan actors are going to do what partisan actors do. 
But our, our job isn't to decide whom North Carolinians vote for. Our job is to just make sure your vote counts. And that's our North Star at the Board of Elections. So I, I don't see any pressure and I don't see any opportunity for that pressure to have any effect on what we do. It's, it's boring in most years. Obviously, there's a lot more attention being paid to voting and to voting in North Carolina this year. But, but the job remains the same. And that's just to make sure that we get it done right. It's not glamorous. Sometimes it's exceedingly tedious, uh, but that tediousness is for a reason. And so that's we can make sure that we get the count accurate. Let's look at your preparedness for the fall. We know that there's a record number of absentee ballot applications, requests that have come in. Talk to us about the preparedness at the local level and what this would mean from small town versus a big urban center and everything in between. Well, we, we kind of got lucky in 2020. This was the first year in which we conducted our primary election during Super Tuesday. So the actual first case of COVID-19 was on primary election day here in Wake County. Uh, so our, our big election in the, in the spring didn't, didn't happen before the pandemic. We then had a, a smaller congressional primary, second primary, so we got a little bit of a taste of what we would need to do to make sure that our election here in, in the fall is going to operate well. Here's the good news. Election administrators don't just work one or two days a year. They're at it 365, and lately it's been 24-7. We learned a lot from other states. Uh, we've been on top of all the processes that we need to make sure that it goes smoothly. And we've had some built-in advantages that were in our law well before COVID-19. So a good example of that is how we uh, prepare your absentee vote by mail in order for it to be counted. First things first, we were the first state in the union to start sending those out. We started on September 4th, and we're very proud that uh, almost 700,000 haven't checked today. Uh, absentee ballot request went to us and we're getting those out as we speak. Not only do we have the opportunity to get them out early, those uh, ballots out early, but when they come back, we can do everything but the tabulation in the weeks leading up to the election. So a group of uh, bipartisan board of electors review each ballot uh, envelope in the container and make sure that it's sufficient and, and secure. And then we do everything except tabulate those. So come election day, we'll be ready to go with all of our tabulation work and we'll be able to get many of our results out right there November 3rd for all the people who voted absentee by mail, all the people who voted early, and then as election night rolls on uh, after the polls close, we'll start tabulating those votes as well. Well, I'm so glad you walked us through that because that was one of many questions that we got uh, from your state was when will vote by mail be counted? So what it it sounds like you're saying is you can get it the process all set up, make sure that all the absentee ballots are, you know, they're valid. And then the day of the election, starting at what time can they actually start saying, okay, add them up? So we don't tabulate until the polls close. And the reason we don't do that is, is we don't want anybody to know beforehand what the results might be going into election day. Uh, but we can do everything beforehand ready to go. So as you said, we can review the absentee ballot. It's called an absentee ballot container, which it's the envelope in which your ballot comes in. Make sure that's ready to go. We can get the ballot ready, scan it, get it into the tabulation machine. And then on election day, every ballot that came to us before election day, we will tabulate right then when the polls close. 
There'll be some late-breaking ballots, people who uh, mailed their absentee vote-by-mail ballot in late. Uh, we will count those. So long as they're postmarked by Election Day, we'll count them up to three days after Election Day. So we'll get all of those, those uh, done. And then any ballots that there was any question on and needed to go through a curative process, we'll count those as well. But the overwhelming majority of our ballots will be counted on Election Day and into before sunrise, if you will, on, on Wednesday morning. We'll have most of our <laughs> ballots done. That's not the case everywhere, and we're very proud of that here in North Carolina. You make a really good point, though. It needs to be postmarked. By Election Day, we know there's been a lot of back and forth about the role of the Postal Service in this election. If the race is really, really close, will you know how many ballots you expect to still come in after Election Day? Well, we'll certainly have a rough idea because you have to request your absentee ballot. And so we'll know how many outstanding requests there are. Some of those people might have chosen to go and vote on Election Day. You're allowed to request an absentee ballot, and so long as you don't try and vote that ballot, you can go and and, and vote in person. And so we'll have a rough idea of how many outstanding ballots uh, there will be. Uh, It's really important for people to understand that our job isn't to get it fast. Our job is to get it right. And we're going to do everything we can to move as quickly as we can But this is the middle of a pandemic. Uh, We are anticipating a huge surge in the number of voters who choose to vote absentee by mail, and those take more time to process. So we're going to ask the public for some patience, and we're going to ask that everybody just sit tight and take a breath. I think here in in 2020, a a little bit of everybody just kind of relaxing a bit is probably a good idea for all sorts of reasons. Uh, And we'll get done, and we'll get through it, and we'll get through it together. Do you have an expectation for what percent of the vote you think is going to come early absentee versus in person? Internally, we've been looking at uh, anywhere between 20 and 40 percent of North Carolina voters choosing to use their vote absentee by mail. We also have had a, a good history in the last decade or two of early voting and a lot of voters using the roughly two week period from October 15th to October 31st to to vote early. So there's a good chance that north of 70% of our voters will have cast their ballot before November 3rd. Wow. Um, So let's talk then about that in-person process. Um, Obviously, what we saw during the primaries were a lot of uh, places that normally had been open for voting were closed either because they didn't have the poll workers to staff them or because they were in places that quite frankly weren't safe uh, during a pandemic, senior centers, schools, etc. What is the in-person situation going to look like in North Carolina at this moment? And do you think you're going to get the number of poll workers and the number of polling places that you need? Well, I'm optimistic on both fronts. I'm optimistic about poll workers for two reasons. One, in a bipartisan fashion, the General Assembly passed a bill that lets poll workers be from in the county in which they're registered, not simply the precinct in which they're registered. So that'll give us a little bit more flexibility in how we staff these polling places. We have over 2,500 election day polling places, as well as almost 500 early voting uh, places to vote. And that's a lot of staffing that we need to do. We're anticipating a need for nearly 30,000 election workers in order to achieve the election. The reason I'm optimistic that we'll get those 30,000 
uh, election workers is we've seen North Carolinians step up. Uh, we ran a, something called the Democracy Heroes Campaign, said not all heroes wear capes, some work on elections. And uh, what we did at the state level is we opened a portal that let anybody uh, note their interest, and then we're sending those interest forms to the counties so they can use that in their already uh, staffing preparations. We've had 17,000 North Carolinians uh, fill out an interest form. That's on top of all the work that the counties are doing. Um, I'm an election nerd. I've been a, around this work for a long time, and it, nothing warms my heart more to see that, that people are taking a real interest in making sure that their friends and neighbors can vote and vote in a way that's convenient and safe and accessible. And so I am optimistic that we're going to have all of our polling places fully operational and that we're going to have everybody step up to do that work so that people can vote quickly on election day and during the early voting process. And frankly, during the, the mail-in process, which also takes a fair amount of staff time. North Carolina and voting, as you very well know, been in the news recently, thanks to some comments the president recently made, encouraging voters to vote by mail and then go in person to make sure that that ballot was actually counted. Can you talk about that for a minute, about what that would look like? Well, certainly the first thing I'll say is in, in, in regards to the president's comments, we sent out a statement earlier uh, on that specific instance. But generally speaking, what I want to talk about is the notion of double voting. Uh, if you attempt to vote twice fraudulently in North Carolina, that's a felony and you will go to jail. And believe me, we know how to catch you. If you're trying to simply verify your vote, you're doing a disservice for a couple of reasons. First of all, we give you plenty of options to verify your absentee vote by mail. You can do it without leaving the comfort of your own home. You can do it online. You can call your county board of elections. Uh, you can send an email and we can certainly verify whether or not your vote has been received and tabulated. Secondly, when you go to the polling place, having already voted, what you're doing is, is you're taking the spot of somebody else who hasn't voted in that line. And you're gonna make it more challenging for your friends and your neighbors and other people who need to do, who need to do their civic duty. And, and that, that, that's discouraging for a lot of reasons. So I will say to everybody, one, if you intend to defraud us, it's a crime, you will go to jail. Two, there are plenty of ways to make sure that your vote counts. And three, make sure your neighbors have the opportunity to uh, vote as well. Damon, I have to say that, that the number three is the thing that I kept thinking about is what happens when 200 people show up at 7.30 in the morning at the local polling place, all asking these poll workers to double check and make sure that their vote was cast. Meanwhile, there's a long line out the door of people who still are waiting to vote, and this creates, it sort of gums up the whole works. Is that what you're thinking as well? I'm, I'm concerned about that. Uh, I want to assure everybody that if you vote absentee, vote by mail, uh, we're going to count your vote. Uh, what I will suggest to all voters is make a plan and make your plan as early as possible. So if you choose to vote absentee vote by mail, request your ballot early and get your ballot back in as soon as you're ready. If you're gonna early vote, we've got a 17 day period in which to do it. Typically the first day is really busy and then the next 10 there's plenty of room and then it gets busier and busier as, as the last few days approach. So if you're gonna early vote, go ahead and do that early. And if you're going to vote on election day, I would suggest you do that as early as you can. You know, uh, making a plan and having uh, contingencies so if 
the babysitter doesn't show or something comes up at work, you've already done your civic duty. I think it's just smart planning on everybody's part. And I, I think I hope voters will do that when it comes to how they choose to vote. But let me ask you this question. If And we got one of these from uh, a, a listener. Um, I think it was a listener from Raleigh who was saying, uh, well, what if uh, I do request a ballot and it hasn't come? Like, how, how nervous should I be that I haven't gotten my ballot yet? Should it be a week? Should it be five days? What's What's the process in which you would say to a voter, you know what? Gosh, that's... That you should definitely I would say them. one, give us a little bit of time, especially in these early days. Uh, but if you don't hear from us uh, middle of this month, then certainly check in with us and see what's going on. I would say two, if it's to- towards the end and it's crunch time and you're still waiting for a, a, an absentee request ballot, you still have options during the early voting period and during uh, election day. I know people have some concerns about COVID-19 and, and being safe. Well, let me tell you, going to vote is going to be safer than a trip to Walgreens. We have secured enough PPE for all of our election workers as well as our voters. Uh, we're doing uh, social distancing. We're keeping people uh, spaced and we're moving them through relatively quick so we don't anticipate you being indoors all that long. So uh, there's plenty of ways to do this. And if you don't hear from us on your absentee vote by mail request, give us a little bit of time. And if you're still concerned, you still have other options here in North Carolina. Are you getting those same kind of questions, Damon? I'm curious, and it's not just the the president's remarks, but obviously the issue of absentee ballot and early vote and safety being talked about constantly. Um, what are the sorts of questions that you all are fielding at your office from, from North Carolinians? One of the things that we election nerds, we election administrators have to remember is that while we live and breathe this stuff every day, Most North Carolinians don't think about the election process all that often. So it's understandable that there are a lot of questions. People really are trying to figure out what's going on. I will say that, yes, we're getting a lot of the questions that you've asked. And I'd say that one of the most important things you can do when you're seeking answers about your election process is go to trusted sources of information. So obviously us at the North Carolina State Board of Elections, ncsbe.gov is our website, and we've completely revamped it to make it more voter friendly. there's a trusted source of information. Go to, to news sources that you have trusted for some time and check a couple different news sources in case somebody got it wrong. The fact of the matter is it's a lot of information. The process is very demanding um, if you're not familiar with it. And so what you want to do is, is make sure that we make it easy for you. And the way we make it easy for you is by sharing as much information about it as uh, beforehand and being as transparent as we go ahead and count the votes. How worried are you, speaking of trusted sources of information, that they're either through nefarious means, this could be Russians or other foreign uh, governments, or through just, you know, the kinds of conspiracies that start out as as Facebook posts and then somehow make their way through the viral process, um, that that really is making what you do so much harder and that some of these conspiracy theories or whether, again, whether they were placed there intentionally or not are going to deter people from voting or impact how people vote. You know, over the last couple of years, you mentioned uh, Russian interference. Uh, 
there's been rumors going around that somehow the, the voting apparatus or the machines are, are not secure. And I can 100% guarantee you that the hacking of elections will not happen because somebody's able to hack our machines. In North Carolina, everybody will have a paper ballot. And whether or not you mark that paper ballot with a stylus or using a ballot marking device and we spit out a ballot for you that you can review, everybody's got a paper ballot so we can go back and audit these things if we need to. The, the machines themselves are not hackable. What is hackable is the mind of the voter, and that's what the Russians did in 2016, and that's what nefarious folks will try and do again. The thing you can do to protect, protect yourself from being hacked is be very, very intentional about where you get your information. I, I don't want to cast aspersions on social media accounts and social media feeds. We have one at the State Board of Elections. But the best sources of information are going straight to the source itself or to trusted, uh, long-standing news organizations. The news organizations that have been in business for a long time have a, a reputation and a history of creating journalism, of verifying facts, making sure what they're saying is true. And then we at the Board of Elections, uh, our only job is to make sure that you understand how to cast your ballot. So if we're trying to prevent hacking, we need to worry less about the machines in which are used to conduct voting and more about people who are trying to spread misinformation. And, and the best way we can inoculate ourselves against that type of hacking is to not trust any one source of information and to make sure that we do our homework and who's talking to us. And how much work, Damon, are you doing yourself to knock down any of these rumors that start? I mean, for example, I saw the Ohio Secretary of State on his Twitter feed. He actually broke down what he saw on Facebook as this uh, conspiracy that was floating around that apparently you all send out different ballots, different people and can track who they're voting for, right? You think it's a secret ballot, but because they have these letters here, it means they know you voted for a Democrat or Republican, and then someone can throw your ballot out. Or what I worry about, too, is people walking around the weeks leading up to early vote and election day with their uh, iPhones, their, you know, handheld phones and, and taking either photographs or videos of things that they think are nefarious, whether that's with a postal office worker or somebody they say is illegally harvesting ballots. Like how, how much work is the North Carolina Board of Elections going to do to push back on every one of these, at least the ones that make it into, you know, the social media at a, at a pretty high level, like a lot of people are watching it? Well, I, I can say, speaking of bipartisanship, I don't know the Ohio Secretary of State, but I saw him on Meet the Press. He was on with our executive director last week. And he's doing an excellent job of pushing back against some of those uh, nefarious uh, misinformation campaigns. Here at the North Carolina State Board of Elections, we have the same job, which is to push back and be speaking constantly to folks like you. Uh, we have a, a social media feed. We've got a wonderful public information office that pushes out as much as we can. It's, it's incumbent upon us as election administrators to let the world know about what we're doing and let them see. I mean, every time we have an opportunity to show you exactly how we do this process, um, it's an opportunity for, for you to see that your vote will be secure and your vote will count. And so it's hard uh, in, in a fractured media environment as we've had here for the last 15 or 20 years. It's even more challenging, uh, but it's, it's a big part of our job and we take it seriously. Damon Sircosta, I want to thank you so much for taking all of this time walking us through this process. It was really helpful. 
Amy, thank you. For most of the last 40 years, North Carolina had been a rather reliable Republican state. But since 2008, the state has become much more competitive. Barack Obama narrowly won here by less than a point in 2008. Mitt Romney, he carried the state by just two points. Trump won it by just three. This state is big and diverse. It has fast-growing urban centers like Charlotte and the Research Triangle, but it also has huge rural stretches as well. And reaching voters here is incredibly expensive because there's not just one main media market that encompasses the majority of voters. To understand a bit more about the political dynamics at play in North Carolina, I spoke to Rusty Jacobs, a politics reporter at WUNC North Carolina Public Radio, and Michael Bitzer, a professor of political science at Catawba College. I asked Michael if it's an influx of voters to the state that has made North Carolina more competitive. It is certainly in migration. Uh, We are seeing more and more people registering unaffiliated. That does not mean that they are independent or nonpartisan, but they are just choosing to go unaffiliated in this state because they want to have options, particularly when it comes to party primaries. Unaffiliated voters can vote in either one. I would also add that there is a geographic and a generational dynamic that is playing out really that mirrors kind of the national dynamics, I think, what we're seeing. Geographically, it's urban versus rural, but in the suburbs of North Carolina, you have to kind of think about suburbs that are inside urban counties versus the exurbs, the surrounding suburban counties. Two very different dynamics playing out. There's also the generational component. There's 37% of our 7 million registered voters are under the age of 40. And so millennials and now Gen Zers are really going to reshape this state. And I think if they play true to the national dynamics, we could go from center lean right to center lean left in terms of North Carolina politics moving forward. Rusty, I want to get to you. Talk to us a little bit about the political environment right now in North Carolina. When we look at national polls, it's the economy, it's COVID, a lot of uh, issues surrounding policing and uh, racial uh, reconciliation. Um, What is going on in North Carolina? What do you think are the driving issues? And how do you see it playing out across a state that, as Michael pointed out, is so big and so diverse. A lot of those same things are happening. A lot of those discussions are happening. I mean, just in the past few months, I and my colleagues here at WUNC have covered protests. Really, if you go towards the beginning of the pandemic and the public health restrictions that were imposed, there were uh, gatherings outside the legislature by people who wanted to see some of those restrictions lifted and some of the economy open, the uh, reopen protests that you saw here and in other states. But then after the killing of George Floyd, you saw even bigger, more widespread protests, definitely with more diverse crowds, uh, with younger crowds. And those protests continue. I would say if just comparing numbers uh, and, and, you know, broad array of of, uh, citizenry, the reopen demonstrations kind of pale in comparison to the size and the volume of the demonstrations that have followed, uh, that ensued after George Floyd's killing. So in that respect, you've got this, um, you know, you, you've got the 
police for the demand for police reforms on the one hand. And you've got uh, you still got a loyal, probably Republican electorate that wants to see uh, some of those restrictions lifted in easing or, or uh, in helping the economy get restarted. And you'll see that in the governor's race, Dan Forrest, who's the current lieutenant governor challenging incumbent Roy Cooper, is, is hoping that will help propel him. So you see the, in the governor's race certainly a reflection of that debate, economy versus continued public health restrictions. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, you've got uh, new uh, new developments in the news cycle. Uh, the Trump appointee leading the United States Postal Service has suddenly has his contributions going back uh, a decade under scrutiny. And all of that's going to start factoring in the way people are, are looking. And, and one thing I'll, I'll end on is that, as Damon Sircosta noted, and as Michael Bitzer will confirm, some votes are already being cast. The ones that are being cast are being based on the landscape now, not on whatever may happen in the next 50 days or so before the election. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to, to get into that. I wanted, though, follow up on your point about Governor Rick Cooper, who's up for re-election. His, the lieutenant governor is a Republican, right? They run separately, which is how you can have a Democrat and a Republican as governor, lieutenant governor. But my understanding was Roy Cooper especially in the beginning stages of the pandemic, was enjoying some pretty good job approval ratings, right? He was getting, the public was supporting what he was doing, how he handled the pandemic. Um, now that we're into September, has that job approval that, especially on that issue, started to slip? Overall, his policy and his approach and his um, steering of the state through this pandemic is is still supported by a majority of people that would be polled. I mean, Elon University and Meredith College and Raleigh did polls recently, and those indica- there were indications that uh, the, the if not the plurality or not the majority of plurality of voter of registered voters, expected voters do support uh, Governor Cooper's decisions, even though they counsel restraint. And, and it's still there are still challenges to the economic uh, the economic community or the business community. But right. overall, the, he does not seem to be damaged by those positions. Right. And that the whole debate back and forth between the president and the RNC and the governor over holding the convention in Charlotte, that doesn't seem to have hurt uh, the governor either, does it? It would seem that Cooper's uh, positions are viewed by a critical number of voters, a majority or a plurality of voters in North Carolina, that uh, he's making decisions based on what is best for the public, uh, not as what is best for him politically, even though it may be getting cast that way by his opponents. I'll note too that the Cooper the campaign, Cooper the candidate, not the governor, uh, is trying to draw a lot of attention to the fact that Lieutenant Governor Forrest, his challenger, is holding in-person donation in, 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 in-person campaign events, despite the fact that those may present a health risk. Michael, let's get to the point that Rusty brought up and that we talked a lot about with uh, Damon Sircosta about absentee ballot requests. You are following this more closely than certainly, I think, anyone in the country. You send out wonderful gifts every day um, <laughs> telling us just what to expect from the upcoming uh, tranche of absentee ballot requests. So here we are. It's September. What can you tell us 
about the voters who've been requesting the absentee ballots. If you can break it down into the kinds of people and the parts of the state uh, that are requesting these ballots. Yeah, well, typically for those folks who don't know much about North Carolina, In 2016, less than 5% of all the ballots cast came from absentee by mail. And typically that vote method tends to be more Republican than the electorate as a whole. What we are seeing now is basically 10% of the 7 million registered voters in the state have requested an absentee by mail ballot. That's 700,000. Four years ago, this same day, the total number of ballots requested was a little over 40,000. So basically, we are talking about 16 times what we saw this time four years ago. We've already tripled the number of ballots that were returned and accepted from 2016. And if we continue on this pace, by the end of September, it looks like we could reach 1.7 million requests, which is a quarter of all the registered voters in this state. Now, the the breakdowns in terms of party registration is really interesting because it is overwhelmingly coming from registered Democrats. They are over a majority of all the requests. Registered unaffiliated are almost a third and registered Republicans that typically tend to dominate are only 16% of all the requests. So something obviously is driving all of this. This is probably COVID infecting partisanship to a level that I haven't seen, and I don't think anybody in North Carolina politics has seen this level of interest in terms of having a ballot in your hand in case something happens over the next two months. How this plays out, I'm not really sure. The uh, requests are actually quite representative of the electorate racially. It skews older, which is traditional, but it also very much skews to urban counties and particularly some congressional districts that are very competitive, most notably the 11th congressional district, Mark Meadows' old district, which is now an open seat in the mountains of North Carolina. To Rusty's point, I'm wondering if you can tell us what you think about how many of those ballots actually get returned. In other words, he made the point that, well, if we're in the middle of this news cycle here in early September, but in October, maybe something else has happened that none of us can even assume. Uh, Do you think that really does impact then the final outcome that people are are going to be voting at different times. And if Democrats have more of these absentee ballots in hand, that it could benefit Democrats? You know, I, I think in this environment, anything goes. And honestly, I think the, the number of ballots that we will receive, see returned this week, remember, they just went out Friday. I got my absentee by mail ballot today. We had a federal holiday, no mail came through. So I received my ballot today. I think people who are returning in these first couple of weeks are the diehard partisans. Their minds are made up. 
they're not going to change their votes. And so the likelihood is we will get a flood of returns coming in. The question is, as I tell my students, read the syllabus, read the instructions. You have to sign the back of the ballot envelope. You have to have a witness who also has to provide information and sign as well. If you don't do those things, the counties have the option of sending you an affidavit to attest to it, or they will send you a second ballot saying, your first ballot was invalid for these reasons, make sure to do this, read the instructions, and then resubmit. In 2016, we saw about 87% of all the ballots requested returned and accepted. Granted also that some folks decided to vote in person. That will automatically void the absentee by mail ballot. So there's no issues that Damon talked about of double voting in North Carolina because their records are so well kept. And I would also say in this state, the records are transparent. We know what's going on for those of us who study this kind of dynamic. Uh, one question, um, Michael, I'm going to start with you. And then, Rusty, I'm going to ask you about this. This was uh, from YouTube uh, from Mary Clens, who asked to talk about how the virus could be impacting student turnout, specifically college student turnout, now that many are at home. Rusty, obviously is in Chapel Hill, which has a lot of college students. And of course, Michael Bitzer, you're on a college campus. What do you think? Yeah, I think certainly a lot of students utilize absentee by mail voting. They, they may be living outside of their hometown. They're at a college campus. They want uh, that convenience to be sent a ballot to their dorm. Oftentimes what happens if, if a college has to close down or they have to go back home, they will simply cancel that request, void that request, and then request another one. They could also show up to vote in person as well. I think for a lot of North Carolina voters who are probably requesting these ballots, they can request the ballot and then return it in person to either an early voting site or to their county board of elections. So as Damon noted, there's a lot of flexibility, but certainly college students are a key uh, group that is oftentimes targeted by grassroots uh, mobilizing efforts. And if they're not on campus, that really kind of loses the, the punch or the impact of trying to get them out to the polls. We'll just kind of have to see how this all plays out in the data as we get over the next couple of weeks and two months. Rusty, what's going on? Chapel Hill, Duke, those schools, obviously, that's a lot of students. What's the situation, um, the in-person situation right now? Tumultuous. I mean, this <laughs> UNC is a great test case. Yeah. Uh, they were one or two weeks into a semester where students were supposed to and actually attending class online. And then suddenly, cases of COVID popped up and the school reversed course. And so those students are in exactly the kind of situation you're uh, conjuring with your question. You know, um, if they had absentee ballot requests in and we're expecting to get them on campus and now they're going back home, what can they do? I mean, the, the best thing to do if anybody has a question is of course contact the State Board of Elections or their County Board of Elections office or go online and issue another request. But, but, but you know, it cannot be, 
emphasized enough that once you have your ballot and that absentee ballot by hand, you don't have to mail it in. Uh, you could go in person to your county board of elections. You could go to an early voting site during that 17 days or so of early voting. Uh, but it's, you know, it, it, it there are com- the, the situation is complicated by the fact that you, uh, an institution as big as UNC had to reverse course and students had to uproot themselves and, and go back home because of the outbreak of, of COVID on campus. Right. And I assume if you're a campaign that was planning on earlier this year, targeting college campuses, saying we're going to get on campus as soon as the students are back and organize and get them registered to vote and turn them out for our candidate. Now, what can they do? My guess is there'll be a lot of phone banking and there'll be mm-hmm. there'll be a lot of cleanup uh, by those groups. I, I don't think any effort will be spared to, to make sure, you know, by organizations that want to see as many people vote as possible. Uh, the question is just where do you reach them and do you get them the message in time? My guess is yes. I, I mean, again, North Carolina started sending up about 60 days ahead. I mean, the other states, I think, uh, won't start for another two weeks or so, 45 days out. So North Carolina has given itself a lot of breathing Uh, Michael, I want to get to this question, too, as the absentee ballot requests start turning into absentee ballots actually turned in. What will that tell us, if anything, about the potential outcome in North Carolina? More importantly, what can it not tell us? <laughs> well, it can't tell us until after 730 on November 3rd. Right. Uh, you know, those of us that watch the website for the State Board of Elections are hitting refresh at 730.01 uh, to see when these numbers get dumped. And oftentimes these early votes, both the mail and the in-person early votes are the first numbers reported. We get a sense of how things are going and the sheer numbers, but North Carolina has a unique dynamic in that in the past, uh, absentee by mail tended to favor Republicans. In-person early voting tended to favor Democrats, but then you switch back to Republicans on election day. Mm -hmm. And that's oftentimes what causes this very competitive nature is that leads can be built up through these early votes, but then they get whittled down to competitiveness uh, once the election day numbers come in. Certainly the dynamic of knowing who is casting an absentee by mail vote, uh, we get the data, we get the individualized information on these voters once they're accepted. That gives us a little bit of a hint, but I'm, you know, it's 2020. I'm not making any predictions whatsoever about what could happen over the next two months, just based on numbers and the patterns playing themselves out here. Right. So don't read too much into this. Again, if if indeed all 700,000 people turn those ballots in and they happen to be more Democrats than Republicans, at least by registration, don't assume that means, oh, Democrats are going to win the state. Exactly, because we know from a lot of polling, both nationally and starting here in North Carolina, Democrats are preferring to vote by mail and Republicans are preferring to vote in person. And so that dynamic is really one to be careful in terms of trying to read the tea leaves. Rusty, one other race I want to talk to you about because it's getting a whole lot of attention, certainly here in Washington, that's a Senate race where uh, Republican Tom Tillis, freshman, is in what looks like a, by the polls, very, very close race against Democrat Cal Cunningham. 
I wonder if you can tell us what your sense of where that race is and whether you think that the fortunes of those candidates are tied to how well the top of the ticket does. So if you're Cal Cunningham, you need Biden to win. If you're Tillis, you really need Trump to win. Tillis certainly needs Trump um, and, and, and needs needs big turnout because he's tied his fate so closely uh, mm-hmm. to Trump. And, um, you know, he right now may be getting, I wouldn't say pulled under, uh, but snagged in the whirlpool of news. Uh, again, it, indications are from campaign finance records that Louis DeJoy, when he was running this company, New Breed, and, and having some employees, whether they were being coerced or not, uh, contribute to campaigns. Tom Tillis was one of the recipients uh, of money. Um, that doesn't necessarily say anything bad about him, but it's going to require him to pay attention to that. Uh, Cal Cunningham is, is running a mainstream, middle-of-the-road Democratic campaign, very much like Joe Biden. Uh, he doesn't support uh, defunding the police. He supports reform. Uh, he supports a, a public option with the ACA. So he's not making rad, you know, he's not making radical pitches in terms of policy, uh, but he's running a, a very straight and uh, middle of the road campaign. And for him, there's nothing much more to do than that right now. Uh, a lot of the work is being done for him by these new developments uh, about campaign finance and the fact that even, you know, Tom Tillis didn't wear a mask at one of the RNC events events uh, when President Trump spoke from from the White House. So, again, uh, you know, the, for Cal Cunningham, it's probably, stay, you know, keep it cool and, and keep pushing very mainstream uh, policies. And for, for, for Tom Tillis, it's playing a little defense uh, wow. while, while, while trying to hope, again, as, as Michael Bitzer said, I mean, 95% of the North Carolina electorate is probably decided. I mean, I've spoken to the most experienced political campaign consultants out there, and they'll tell you what it's coming down to is 10 or 12%, a very small sliver of the people who call themselves unaffiliated. Right. And that's why I'm wondering if we're, we're going to see the president come down there this week. Um, I'm assuming at some point Joe Biden's going to be coming down. And uh, how important do you think then the actual physical act of campaigning, something that for the last few months has been put on hiatus, it coming back is going to matter, do you think? I, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm purely speculating. I, yeah, think, yeah. I, think, I think, you know, if, if I, my guess is if, again, if the candidates are, are trying to swing that last sliver of voters uh, for President Trump to visit North Carolina and malign a lot of people is probably not the best thing because the people who agree with him are already going to vote for him. Uh, the people who are offended or put off by that, that they're the ones who might walk away saying that he doesn't get, now maybe Joe Biden doesn't get the person, the vote from the person who doesn't vote for Trump. Maybe that's just a, uh, a, a protest non-vote, right? A, a protest uh, no-show vote. Um, and for Joe Biden, I think an appearance, if again, he doesn't get drawn into just a personal attack, it probably helps him. For, for, again, for the few people who are undecided who want to see him as close as possible. Right. Well, Rusty Jacobs, Michael Bitzer, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking this time with me. Appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. 
Rusty Jacobs is a political reporter at WUNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Michael Bitzer is a professor of political science at Catawba College. And be sure to join us next Tuesday, September 15th, for Every Vote Counts Arizona. The event will be live streamed on our Facebook page starting at 6 p.m. Eastern. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Many credit Barack Obama's win in North Carolina in 2008 to strong turnout from African-American voters. Exit polls that year showed African-Americans making up almost a quarter of the electorate in North Carolina, and they gave Obama 95 percent of the vote. But in 2016, African-Americans made up just 20 percent of the vote and supported Clinton by a smaller 81 percent. To understand the role black voters will play in this key state, and get a little context regarding what Democrats would need to do to win, we checked in with Carrie Haney, a professor of political science and African and African-American studies at Duke University. I actually think the Democrats have a chance to win. Now, in order for them to do so, they need to have high black voter turnout. And they need to have, think in terms of 2012, where we saw record black turnout in North Carolina. In that election, just over 70 percent of registered black voters turned out to vote for President Obama's re-election. Now, in 2016, we saw a decline in black voter turnout in North Carolina. Uh, it dropped to 50. Thus far, the Biden-Harris ticket has been used in the traditional means of mobilizing the black vote, and that is used in churches and religious organizations. However, I expect in the coming weeks we'll see a significant effort directed at historically black colleges and universities. North Carolina has a large number of those. And Senator Harris uh, is a proud alum of Howard University, a historically black university. And I expect that connection will play well in North Carolina. I also reached out to Congresswoman Alma Adams. She represents North Carolina's 12th congressional district, which includes Charlotte. I spoke with her about the role she'll play in turning out key voting blocks and how her constituents have fared throughout the pandemic. We've had businesses to close. They are needing uh, support, not only uh, for themselves and their families, uh, but we also need uh, greater support for, for our schools and for our cities and city and county. So uh, people are weathering this storm, but it's been very difficult. It, it has been very difficult. We've had a large number of of people of color to be infected by this uh, virus, many of whom have died from this virus. Of course, we had issues uh, from the outset in terms of disparities that already existed uh, in communities of color. So, Well, I want to move to politics for a minute. And I was reading a piece in the Charlotte Observer that said you are quote, expected to take a leading role in boosting turnout by urging early voting. And you were taking a caravan of supporters to show up Mecklenburg County, 
Board of Elections to turn in your absentee votes. Can you talk to us about what that means to be urging early vote turnout and how you're doing that and what you expect to uh, be able to achieve? First of all, we expect to um, achieve a large uh, turnout here in Mecklenburg. As I said before, uh, we have uh, a large number of voters. If you look at what has happened with our early uh, vote requests for absentee ballots, it is in my district, we're, we're looking at more than 80,000 people who have requested uh, absentee ballots. And that suggests to me that people are very interested in this election. They believe that it is an election that will really determine the rest of their lives. And I'm impressing upon people how important it is to vote early, especially uh, since uh, we're having issues with the mail service. Can you talk to us a little bit about African-American voters and their interest in this election and specifically their enthusiasm for this election? I and mean, what we've been hearing in different communities, talking to different folks around the country is sort of a lack of enthusiasm for Biden, but certainly an interest in seeing Trump defeated. I have not heard to any significant degree that African-Americans are skeptical uh, about Biden. I mean, they're very excited about the possibilities that he brings to build back better. Uh, So I think people are very excited about this election. So I haven't heard that. What I've heard is that we must get out to vote. People are too afraid at this point not to vote, and African-Americans in particular, because the president asked the question once, what do you have to lose? We have a lot to lose. And looking at these past four years with this president, people are just uh, afraid of having more of that for another four years. Uh, We are very, um, African-Americans are very excited. We also know that that there are, this president is not truthful. You know, I've been out here for a long time and I can tell you that uh, from personal experience that the president has not been honest when he says that he's done more for black America since President Abraham Lincoln. And as a black woman who's been out here working, I can tell you that's the biggest lie he's ever told. I don't know if you watched much of the Republican convention, but if you did, you didn't. One thing that we heard a lot about during that convention was support that the president was getting, not just from African-Americans, but he featured a lot of African-American men. And the Trump campaign does believe that they're going to be able to win over more uh, African-American support in 2020, in part by winning, doing better this year with African-American men. Curious what you're seeing and hearing in North Carolina about that. Well, I can tell you that African-American women are going to carry this vote. We have always done that. And I think that the men are a little bit confused, but you know, you can always find a few. I knew some of the folks who were, (laughs) who spoke at that uh, convention. We've turned out for our party. We've been the backbone uh, of this party. Uh, We have been the ones who have sealed elections for many candidates who were uh, maybe in a losing streak. So I I just believe the, the power of black women And the fact that uh, we know what's at stake, uh, we're going to convince our men. And when you look at it realistically, the president has not done 
anything, uh, even for the African-American men and women. Now, we also know that he continues to uh, lie, as I said before, about what he's done for our community. And and I want to just specifically uh, mention the investment that he continues to say he's made in, in HBCUs. He has not. He talks about the um, the bills that we've passed uh, in the Congress, but those were bills that came through the Congress, the Future Act in specific, that uh, provided the kind of support for historically black colleges and universities, of which I have a bipartisan caucus, was not uh, something that the president even pushed. Well, Congresswoman Adams, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Please stay safe out there on the campaign trail. Well, thank you, and I'm going to do that. And uh, (laughs) as I said before, you just watch, as my mama used to say, you know, mark my word, we're going to turn the mother out in North Carolina. Alma Adams represents North Carolina's 12th Congressional District. It's that time of year when summer fades to fall. And under normal circumstances, this would also be the time of year when candidates flock to battleground states as their political allies stump for them on the other side of the country. But nothing is as it was. So as part of our continuing conversation about how the pandemic has changed how campaigns interact with voters, I checked in with Chase Gaines. He's a junior at North Carolina State and also the coalition director for the North Carolina GOP. The start of the pandemic, we were doing all phone banking operations uh, virtually uh, so that we could, you know, prevent people from getting sick. Because when this is the start of the pandemic, we didn't have the personal protective equipment that was necessary to go out and knock on doors. Now that we're able to uh, get masks, get gloves, we're able to follow CDC recommendations and be able to door knock and canvas uh, like we used to, but, you know, with obvious uh, new restrictions. So what kind of response do you get as you go to somebody's door? You know, the, I think there were some expectations that you'd go to a front door and people would look at you like you're crazy, right? I would actually say it's very similar to what it was before, uh, pre-pandemic. I mean, people are, I think people see the effort we go to to make them feel comfortable, stepping six feet back, wearing the mask, wearing the gloves. It really shows through. Uh, so, no, I, I think people, you know, they would give us an honest reaction. If, if they like the president, they're happy to see us. If they don't like the president, they're, they'll take the material usually, uh, read it over. So that's always a, a comforting thing. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and there's just a lot of enthusiasm surrounding the president this year. I, I think one thing that's really got to people is, you know, he's been here in North Carolina three times in the past three weeks. And uh, sadly, we haven't seen Joe Biden in the last six months here in North Carolina. So. When you're talking to folks about uh, Trump, what what are the things that they cite specifically that they're the, the most excited about? Well, I think they just love the way he's able to speak. I mean, the way he's able to speak directly to voters, kind of touch with their issues. The law and order aspect is so big in North Carolina. I mean, it's sad to say we've seen a lot of riding in the streets uh, in the last couple months, and people want to see our country returned back to normal, where we're able to talk to each other, have a conversation without, you know, fighting, without being mad at whole monoliths of people and law enforcement. 
So do you think that's what's changed, let's say, between, I don't know, earlier this spring and and now is the issue of some of the violence that we're seeing around the country? Well, it's just a mix of things. I mean, there is mm-hmm. a lot of turmoil going on with with the pandemic, of course, and, and you know, uh, with these uh, protests recently. Uh uh, you know, I, I don't think I think Republicans especially. I think we've been happy to see uh, peaceful protesting. It's just when things get out of place, uh, it, it starts to scare people. Uh, it really does. I mean, when they see, uh, I'll I'll give you one example. Our local CVS that I used to go to about weekly uh, was burnt down in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Obviously, North Carolina is in the news a lot, and one of the reasons it's in the news, it's one of the first states to mail out absentee ballots. And there's a lot of talk about the fact that so many absentee requests have already been submitted. But Mm -hmm. many more of those requests are Democratic voters, or at least people who are registered as Democrats. Yes. So are you concerned that Democrats may be putting more votes in the bank right now and that Republicans are sort of ceding this kind of early vote to the Democratic Party, counting too much on Election Day turnout? Right, right. And I'll give you an example. In Chatham County, where I'm from in North Carolina, I think it's doubled. Uh, the absentee ballot request has doubled in just one county. Uh, I mean, that's it's pretty astonishing. But now I, I think we're making up ground uh, as it's been in the, la- in the last few weeks. Uh, we've recently, uh, the Trump campaign and a few other people have kind of, you know, asked people to kind of request your ballot, go ahead and do that. Uh, I do think you'll have more Republicans uh, voting at one site locations and going election day. That's just how they like to do it. They like the the, the feeling of voting on election day uh, and seeing the results that night. But I, you know, I will say uh, in the past we've I think Republicans have won in absentee right. ballots in North Carolina. So it's going to be interesting. And I know there's still a lot of people in North Carolina that vote. For the Republican candidate, but our registered Democrats, I think there's a, I know a, there's probably about five in my family alone that do that same thing. So it's a, it's an interesting state, and it's going to be an interesting election. But I think we're making up the ground we need to. I think if, uh, the the latest CNBC poll has the president in the margin of error. I mean that's you know, but it's way better than we were a couple weeks ago. It seems as if nationally and in North Carolina, Republicans. Mm-hmm are doing much more hands-on, grassroots, like you, door-to-door, canvassing type. Very few Democrats are doing this sort of operation. They would be in a normal year without COVID, right? Do you think that's a mistake? I mean, do you think that Democrats are missing an opportunity here and that they should be even doing, maybe as you are doing, wear masks, put on gloves, and go door-to-door? it does take a special, you know, uh, you know, kind of person to be able to willing to walk around in the hot sun with masks on, gloves on, and you know, doing all these different things to try to be able to do that. But I think canvassing operations adds a special touch to campaigning, uh, and I think touch from six feet away still. But uh, it, it is an interesting thing. I, I think the Democrats are making a mistake when it comes to that. I think we had a voter goal in the Republicans of one million voter contacts. We're at about 800,000 now in the state of North Carolina, and that's just young Republicans. I mean, you've got field organizers for the Trump campaign going out every day, wearing the protective equipment, going out, knocking on doors. I mean, it's a it's an amazing thing. You've got more. I think we're probably knocking on doors, making more phone banking calls than we ever have in the past for any presidential candidate. 
Chase, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, ma'am. Take care. Chase Gaines is Coalition Director of the North Carolina GOP. And here's one more thing from me. I've talked to a lot of people recently who are nervous about casting an absentee ballot. They worry the post office may not deliver it on time, that it could be lost in transit, or it could be stolen or altered. And these are valid worries, especially at a time when the president himself is casting so much fear and doubt. But in the course of interviewing the people involved in the administration of the vote, I actually feel a lot better. They know the challenges ahead of them, and they're preparing for it. Sure, they'll make some mistakes, but they're doing all they can to ensure a fair, safe, and transparent election. But you have a rule on this, too. If you want to vote by mail, do it. But don't wait until the last minute. Request your ballot as soon as possible. Get it in the mail in plenty of time before Election Day. Or drop it off in person. And here's the most important thing. Read the instructions. If you have questions, go to the website of your state election officials or give them a call. The way intimidation works is it gets you to doubt yourself and this process. Do not let that happen. Go out and vote. And remember, you can join me on Tuesday, September 15th for Every Vote Counts Arizona. I'll be interviewing Arizona's Secretary of State about the changes they're implementing to the election process in the wake of COVID-19. You can RSVP at thegreenspace.org and we'll send you a link to the live stream or head to the Takeaways Facebook page and watch it live there on Tuesday, September 15th at 6 p.m. Eastern. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Takeaway.